Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well today. This time we're going to be talking about a couple of books, and then I want to kind of get into uh, get into a game that I've been playing recently, and talking a little bit about, you know, why I think it's fun, or why, or at least try to puzzle out why I think I enjoy that game. So, the first book I want to talk about was from uh, Reggie fils He's the former president of Nintendo of America. He's had a huge influence over Nintendo over the past, you know, 15 years or so. And he wrote a book kind of about his life. I think it's a really interesting book. There's a lot of really great advice in there. And it's something that I really enjoyed reading. You know, Reggie's book, it's really fascinating for a few reasons. Uh, There's a lot of advice, like I mentioned. Uh, He talks about, you know, moving from one job to another. He talks a a lot about, you know, the different places that he worked at, the stuff that he had to do when he worked there, and it's just a really awesome read. This is one of those uh, biographies that I've read, or I guess autobiographies that I've read, from people who've uh, contributed to the video game industry. This one is a little bit different because it's not talking about a developer and it's not specifically talking about, you know, one company in general. It kind of is, but it's it's coming at it from a, a different perspective. It's more about, you know, making uh, business decisions and marketing decisions and that sort of thing. Instead of getting into, you know, how you make the games, then that kind of stuff. So, in a way, it's it's a bit like uh, Not All Fairy Tales Have Happy Endings from Ken Williams. Uh, it gets into video games, but it isn't solely about that. In Ken Williams' book, he talks a lot about... Um, he talks a lot about how Sierra Online's business worked, and kind of some of the things that he would have changed in some ways especially when it came to like video game development on very specific games. And with Reggie's book, he he mentions video games in it. Video games are kind of at the core of this, but they're not the over overarching subject. They don't kind of dominate the entire book. It's a lot more about just the different things that he learned while working at different companies and how those things kind of translated into what he did at Nintendo. And he also talks about the things he learned at Nintendo. And it's pretty it's pretty great. We'll uh we'll get more into it in just a second. The second book that I want to talk about is from Doug Walsh. And it's a book about writing walkthroughs. And there's a lot more that goes into it. He'll well walk through the game <laughs> gosh. Sorry about that. The name of the book is is the walkthrough, but he talks a lot about you know making strategy guides and that sort of thing. So it it's a pretty interesting book so far. I just I haven't finished it, so I don't really want to get too into it. But I'll talk a little bit about it uh, in just a little bit, and then in the next episode, I'll I'll probably just wrap that one up. And the last thing I I want to talk about I, I mentioned to. Well, I mentioned one video game that I want to talk about. It's really two. And one is Imperialism, and the other one is Tales of Destiny. And I just kind of wanted to talk out, talk through um, what I was thinking when I was playing those two games. Because I've beaten Imperialism hundreds of times by now. 
and I've never beaten Tales of Destiny, but I've played it a few times, and you know, I, I learned about it from a friend of mine and everything like that. And he gave me kind of his assessment way back in the 90s when he beat the game. And my my experience with it doesn't quite match up with what he told me back then, or at least what I remember he told me back then. So when we get to that one, I'll just I'll run through what I'm thinking with that and kind of talk about why I, why I enjoy those games and kind of wonder... Or, or at least try to figure out why I actually like those. And that'll be in the last part of this. So let's get into Reggie's book a little bit more. So Reggie's book is called Disrupting the Game. And I think it, it's a book that a lot of people should read because I, I think it has a lot of great advice in it. So the book starts off with uh, Reggie's family life and his childhood. And it kind of moves through that pretty quickly. We get kind of a history of how his family came to the U.S. Um, we get a little bit about their life in Brooklyn, and then it moves into his time at Procter & Gamble. So he, he brings up the hiring proc- process at Procter & Gamble, and he mentions how, you know, it, it was kind of a, a little murky, a little shady, that sort of thing. Or at least it sounds that way from what he's describing. Uh, he talks about how he was at Cornell University, how he had uh, he had started off in the ROTC program, and after two years he decided he didn't want to be an officer, so he basically got two years of college for free for the most part, and then kind of paid his way through the other two, and eventually kind of caught the eye of Procter & Gamble, mostly from, you know, the interactions he's had with his uh, professors, the way he's talked to people, all of the stuff that he did to kind of get on the radar and set himself up for up for success. So he ends up going to Procter & Gamble. He gets hired on there and everything. And he brings up the culture there, how they had like a culture of mentors. They, um, they had a lot of other stuff to kind of help him along and help other people along. And he also gets into his exit from the company. And he did something that was correct. Like, he was he was absolutely right on it. The problem is the way he went about doing it. That did not really jive with what uh, the company wanted him to do. He sort of, you know, overstepped his bounds, so to say. And even though he did the correct thing, he made the company a lot of money, he didn't go about it the right way. And that kind of drew the ire of a lot of the people that worked there. And it kind of, uh, he mentions it kind of uh, made him a dead man walking for a bit until he found his next landing spot, which was outside of the company. And from there, he, he talks about going to work at Pizza Hut. And this brought up a lot of memories for me, none of which are, are really relevant, but it, it just kind of uh, made me feel a little bit nostalgic for, um, for the early 90s and that sort of thing. He talks about how Pizza Hut was kind of getting killed by a Little Caesars deal where if you bought one pizza, you automatically got two. It was their old uh, pizza pizza thing. And I never remember that, to be honest, but uh, I think I was like nine at the time. I wasn't exactly buying pizza back then, so I didn't really have any concept of what was going on. I just saw the commercials. And he talks about how uh, Pizza Hut's response to this was the Bigfoot. It was this huge square pizza, 
it's basically a um, a Detroit deep dish for those people who know what a Detroit deep dish is. Uh, this Bigfoot was a variation of that. So instead of the sauce being on the top, the sauce was where it was supposed to be. And it was just a big square pizza. And he talks about how it was a marketing success and everything. The campaign worked up to a point. And once you hit like a year, I thought the Bigfoot went on for a lot longer than this, but it, apparently it only lasted like a year. And he talks about how it was affecting Pizza Hut's kind of image and that sort of thing. And so he had to shut it down. So he had this huge successful campaign, and then he saw it it started to have the opposite effect, where people were kind of associating Pizza Hut with low-quality food and that kind of thing. And I I have no idea if that's really changed over the years, but back then, (laughs) I I don't really remember it either, but from what he's saying, that's what happened. And so he shut down the the Bigfoot and everything, because it achieved what they wanted it to achieve. And it was just kind of a fun story to read. I really enjoyed that kind of stuff that was in this book. And then he talks about a a few other companies, and it seemed like he was sort of leapfrogging from one company to another. So he would go to one company, stay there for a few years, learn whatever he needed to learn, that kind of thing. And then he would eventually leave and go to the next company, learn a bunch of new ideas, like kind of like adding tools to his arsenal or something like that, and then kind of move on. And eventually he lands at VH1, which it didn't sound like he was there for very long, but it sounded like he did a lot of really interesting things. Uh, he was also there for September 11th, like working at VH1. And that story's a little... Uh, It's a little rough to read because it's a a lot of just Reggie doing what he needed to do since he was pretty new there, and it takes a little bit more of a somber tone, which makes sense and everything like that, and he talks about getting people out of the building and getting people home and then trying to figure out how he was going to get home and that that sort of thing. And from there he goes into uh, Nintendo and that sort of thing, and I it made me wonder when I was reading this, like, uh, what he, what would have happened if he had stayed at any one of these companies for an extended period of time? Like, where would they be now? Or, like, where would Nintendo be now? And that sort of thing. So throughout the book, uh, Reggie talks about, you know, both his successes and his failures. It's kind of interesting to see that, you know, you usually get people just focusing on the stuff that they did well, and they sort of ignore the things that didn't really work out for them. I also like how he he talks about and explains what he could have done differently. And, you know, also he kind of goes into, you know, how he, how it was his fault when things went wrong, or when certain things went wrong. It was kind of interesting to see that stuff. And, you know, throughout this, there's a lot of lessons learned that are brought up. So there's a lot of points where uh, he kind of has a, I guess, like a teachable moment is the best way to say it. He has something in his life that he can point back to and say, okay, this is what went wrong here. This is how I would have done better, and this is what I would have changed. And, I mean, there are times when, you know, Reggie wasn't able to convince people that, you know, he was right or, like, his plan was the correct one. And these usually led him to leaving his position. 
and he sort of explains a little bit more about that and he talks a little bit about like a like a toxic work environment and what a bad boss can do and what you should do when you find yourself in that position and usually what he says is uh, you, you should leave that position which kind of makes made a lot of sense to me and I I went through something similar to what he was describing and I was like yeah that that made a lot of sense and it's it's something that I kind of held on to while I was reading this reading through this like really stirred up a lot of emotions in me to be honest with you especially when he was talking about you know what he would have done differently and, and that sort of thing you know the Pizza Hut stuff uh him talking about, you know, the the different styles of leadership, that sort of thing. And even when he was talking about his own leadership style, I kept thinking back to, to other moments that I had in my life and, like, different jobs that I've had and that sort of thing. And, yeah, it, uh, it made me think about a lot of different things. Uh, it, it's a very, very interesting book. Now, to get back on, on subject, though... Um, I think there I think there's a lot of stuff like this in here that that's like very important mostly cuz he's not just bringing up what he did right but you know what he did wrong and these moments like the stuff that he even like his successes and his failures he doesn't really dwell on them very much he talks about it gives his side of the story and then just keeps things moving it's really interesting to to sit back and read and all that other stuff Mostly to think about it, because that's what, that's what I was doing most of the time while I was reading this. Uh, the only thing that I think could have been covered a lot better was was the Wii U. I'll get more into that once we, we get into the Nintendo stuff, which will happen in just a, just a couple seconds. So his time at Nintendo like really takes up most of this book, probably because it's the part that most people want to hear about. Uh, this is where he goes into like the most detail, and this is like the job that he was at the longest. So I, I can understand why he goes into more detail here, because this one was more recent, it was much more fresh in his mind, and if I feel like this is where he had the most uh, success in his career. At least that's what I think. I, I could be like very off on this, but it, it kind of felt that way. At some points during this book, he'll bring up the role that video games played in his life. There are some stories of uh, of him playing uh, Super Nintendo with his kids, and it kind of reminded me of, of playing video games with, with my dad every once in a while. My dad was not into video games, so like my, my experiences are, uh, are very different from Reggie's, playing with uh, different family members. But that's kind of what was going through my mind a little bit while I was reading this. You know, you you sit down, you, you play a game with your dad, that sort of thing. And I didn't have the same experience that he had, but it was it was very... I'm not going to say similar, but it, it brought up those memories of playing with my dad or playing with my mom, that sort of thing. Uh, for the most part in this... Reggie focuses on three different launches. So he focuses on the DS, the Wii, and the 3DS. He talks about, you know, the marketing decisions behind each of them and the things that they did in order to make these launches successful. And this is where this is where uh, the Wii U should have gone in cuz you know, he 
he really kind of just ignores the Wii U for the most part. And I would have liked to have seen him kind of compare and contrast the, the launches of the Wii and the Wii U and kind of hear about why the marketing for the Wii U is different compared to the Wii and kind of, you know, what he would have done differently, that sort of thing. Uh, this doesn't happen, though. Uh, he mentions the Wii U wasn't successful, uh, the software lineup was weak, journalists were confused by the name and the branding, and finally, uh, how they moved on from it quickly, because they just realized that you know, third-party support wasn't there, uh, Nintendo didn't have the games lined up to get this thing over, to kind of get this uh, system over, to steal a wrestling analogy there for a second. And, you know, they just sort of moved on from it pretty quick. I personally would have liked to have heard more about the Wii U. I didn't know it even existed at first. Uh, so when I first heard about the Wii U, I was working retail. And we were kind of returning stuff at the end of the night. And one of my managers mentioned, you know, oh, these are Wii U games. And uh, I... <laughs> Yeah, so let me just kind of back up a second. So when you work retail, you have a bunch of people that pick up things to buy, and then maybe they like change their mind and they leave them throughout the store, or they bring them back to the customer service office, or they just forget about them at the um, at the checkout, or they return something and you have to like figure out where it goes at the end of the night. So we had a bunch of Wii U games that were going to be brought back to electronics. And I asked him, like, hey, you know, what are these? And my manager's like, oh, these are Wii U games. And I asked him what the Wii U was, because I had never heard of it. And he's like, oh, it's it's the new Wii. And I was kind of like, well, well, that's weird. Like, there there's a new Wii? And he's like, yeah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> there's a new Wii, but... No one really seems to know about it or care about it. And, you know, I, I never remember, like, a launch for it or anything like that. It was weird, because usually they have those, like, midnight launches, or at least they did back in the day, where you could line up outside of wherever somebody was shopping. And, oh gosh, wow, that was butchered. You could line up outside of a store and kind of wait, and, like, queue up and wait for the system to be released. I remember doing this for the GameCube and maybe one other system or something like that. But it was kind of weird. And, you know, it's it was something that I felt was missing with the Wii U. Because I just did not know this thing existed. Didn't know that it came out. I uh, had no idea what games were for it or anything like that. Never remember seeing commercials for it. And it was weird that, you know, I was working retail and I didn't know anything about it. This was a big contrast to how I heard about the Wii. You know, it felt like there were way more commercials and product placement for the Wii. You had uh, more people who didn't play games talking about the Wii. Um, on the other hand, the Wii U, like, it, it just didn't seem to have any of this. Like, nobody was talking about it. Nobody was airing commercials for it. I didn't see it in any movies or anything like that. It was just very weird, and it felt like a very lackluster campaign for marketing. Reggie does mention a couple of things that he did for marketing, like him personally, like taking out, doing demonstrations for people, that sort of thing. But it just, that section feels just as lackluster as the Wii U's overall marketing. And then he gets into the Nintendo Switch. 
And he talks about, you know, how Nintendo took a lot of the things that worked with the Wii U and kind of improved on them and put those into the Switch and just kind of ignored all the shit that nobody liked with the Wii U. So you have, like, the portability, hybrid console, that sort of thing. It's a really awesome system. I, I really like mine, and I'm glad that I got it. It's just very strange, because you see the marketing campaign that was with the Switch, where they were everywhere for the most part. And the marketing was all about, you know, getting get, getting together and having fun with people and, and stuff and everything along those lines. All the stuff that was marketed marketed with the Wii seems to have been the same way that it was that the Switch was marketed. Uh, let me actually word that better. <laughs> All the, the ways that the Switch is marketed now you saw with the Wii. They marketed the Wii as a family console, so great for people who hadn't been involved with video games before to kind of get back into them. And that seems to be how the Switch was marketed. Marketed at kind of younger uh, younger people, so I guess those darn dirty millennials and whatnot that was marketed at them to kind of get them out and pick up the Switch and that sort of thing. And it seems like they really did. A certain health crisis also kind of helped with that, but I, I think the Switch was going to be successful regardless, because it had sold millions of units before the health crisis even started. And then after all of that stuff is over, he kind of talks a, a little bit about him retiring from Nintendo. And then we read a little bit about what he was doing afterwards, like the, the speaking tours that he would go on and that sort of thing. And he kind of mentions GameStop a little bit. I'm, I'm not even sure how long he's... He was either... I'm not sure how long he was on the board or if he is still on the board of GameStop because it kind of seems like it got announced that he was added to the board and then just kind of nothing happened because GameStop is, to put this in a nice way, GameStop is a dying brand and I don't think Reggie could possibly save it. So he's probably just there to, to give them some advice while they make stupid mistake after stupid mistake and just kind of kind of run themselves into the ground. After they were a meme stock, of course, which definitely helped them out for absolutely no reason. So let, let's go into one of the other things that I, I like about this book. And I'll, I'll do my best to kind of avoid weird talks about random things that don't have anything to do with it, but I'm, I'm not going to promise you. I'm, I'm just going to try to do my best. So throughout the book, there are these sections that uh, Reggie puts in called So What? And these are kind of like different, um, these are different sections to sort of like reinforce a point that he made and kind of add some additional advice onto it. Something that didn't really fit in with the overall narrative that he's telling, but he wanted to at least call attention to it. So you'll read a chapter and then he'll give you like, like three or four paragraphs sometimes to kind of hammer home a certain point. And I think those are probably the most helpful out of this entire book. I really like how he uses these and you know I, I think I think what he says in them is incredibly helpful, especially just in, in your daily life and that sort of thing, or you know, setting goals and trying to achieve them, you know, just learning how to talk to people, that sort of thing. Mostly because they're like separate from the narrative, and you can like come back and skip to whichever one you you need at the per at the 
skip back to whichever one you need at any specific time. Sorry about that. I think these are like a really nice addition to the book. You know, they they give some really great life advice and they also give some advice on kind of navigating any problem that you might come up with or like specific problems that you might come up with, not necessarily any problem. It feels like this is one of Reggie's efforts to kind of give back to people in some way. It's a way for people to kind of see what he did right and see what he did wrong, learn from Reggie's mistakes, and try to not make those same mistakes. Because, you know, we're all going to make mistakes at some point, but it's always nice to have some advice on hand to, you know, kind of work your way through certain things. So, what are my, my final thoughts on this? I think this is a really great book. I think there's a lot of solid advice in here. And it also seems that, you know, Reggie's story isn't over. Like, there could be more to this at some point. Or he might pick out something that he would want to want to elaborate on. There's a few th- different things that I don't think were explained very well or kind of glossed over in this book. Um, I mentioned the Wii U, but I also... But there's also his time at, at GameStop that I think he could have, you know, gone into a little bit more. Even though I think at the time this was written, it was still probably early on. But, you know, that's that's something that uh, we're, we might never know if he really even wants to talk about this or not. There are a few other kind of minor things that I, I wish he had talked about. And a lot of them just kind of revolve uh, marketing and, and business and that sort of thing. Because he talks about it a lot in here, but it feels like there was stuff that, you know, maybe hit the cutting room floor or he didn't necessarily want to go into. And that's just kind of the way things go. He doesn't necessarily have to talk about everything, and I can completely understand if he wanted to skip stuff. It was just something that I wanted in the book, even if, you know, it probably was never going to be in there. After reading this, um... I have more questions about some of Nintendo's marketing strategies in the 2010s. It just kind of seems like that was a a smaller part of the book, and it probably could have been, you know, explored a little bit more. Because he goes into the marketing for, you know, the Wii and the the DS, but the 3DS and, well, the 3DS, Wii U, and Switch they're not really gone into with the with the same level of detail as the other two it feels a little a little incomplete but i'm i'm guessing there were probably some other reasons why he didn't go into it or something along those lines it's i don't know i don't feel like rambling on about this for too much longer so you know it's a great book i just kind of wish like certain things were explored a little bit more in here okay so now that's over let's let's talk a little bit about uh about doug walsh's book uh, the walkthrough like i said i'm i'm not completely finished with this one i just wanted to talk a little bit about it because i find it just absolutely fascinating i talked a little bit about um that well in a few different places i've written about and i've talked about uh, nintendo's uh Nintendo's Player's Guide, and how that sort of slowly evolved into its own strategy guide over time. But you never hear about the people that wrote those. And in this case, uh, 
Doug talks about how he wrote strategy guides. He worked for Brady's Games, or Brady Games, and that was really one of the, the two big publishers of strategy guides. There was Prima, and then there was Brady. And eventually, I think they ended up merging, but those were the two big ones. He mentions a few other ones in here that I had never heard of before, which I, I think are, is just absolutely fascinating, and I, I might want to, once I'm all done, I might want to actually like go and research those a little bit. But for the most part, he's talking about uh, Brady. And he goes through like how he got into uh, writing strategy guides and that sort of thing, and how he became a freelance writer and whatnot. And that I, I found incredibly interesting, because this was back in the 2000s, and he talks about how he got in like around the time of the, um, the dot-com bubble and everything, when you just had a whole bunch of websites that, was, that were just... They weren't making money, but people were investing in them for some godforsaken reason, with the intent of them going to be making money. So you had a lot of different websites that were, you know, making strategy guides or making different guides for different video games. Because before this, if you didn't have, like, if you didn't have Nintendo Power and you didn't know a friend who knew a certain trick on how to get past a video game, you were kind of screwed until you could figure it out on your own. So in some cases, these strategy guides were really necessary especially before the internet became, like, super popular and everything. So you had people who would just sort of pay you a lot of money to make strategy guides. And at the point that I'm at in this book, he talks about how the bottom kind of fell out of that, and a lot of websites went defunct because they were, they were not generating any money, but they were paying out a lot of money for people to make content. And it just wasn't going anywhere because this was still early, well this was, yeah, this was still early in the internet, so you couldn't really monetize a lot of this stuff very well. I know that sounds crazy today, because you, you can do it today, but back then it was incredibly hard to get people to actually advertise, to make money on it, your different sites, and you had to be incredibly lucky to do so. So you had some things like IGN, GameSpy, they were still around. He talks about working for those companies, but for the most part, we're just talking Brady games. And what I, I really like about this, especially, um, especially what I've read so far, is just hearing about his different experiences working as like a freelance writer on video games. He talks a lot about, you know, what he would do in order to make it make a guide. He talks about the different ways that he would put things together, the collaboration he would have to do with other writers, that sort of thing. It w it's really interesting so far, and I'm kind of I'm looking forward to wrapping it up and kind of going into it um, going into it in a little bit more depth in depth later. So I'm not going to like keep rambling. I'm not going to continue to ramble on about it, which I'm sure is just fascinating to everybody else. So that's that's pretty much the walkthrough right now, and then we'll now I want to talk about uh, Tales of Destiny and Imperialism. So I've been playing these two games, or at least I, I wrapped up playing Imperialism, and I keep going back to it for some weird reason. But it's it's mostly just because I really enjoy the game, 
and I'm I mentioned in the the video that'll come out at some point that I'm not really sure why I like it. It's one of those weird games that I just can't really put my finger on the like the why why I enjoy this game. And I've also been I'm almost done with uh, Tales of Destiny. And that's a much easier one to say, you know, why I enjoy that game because it's it's an action RPG and it's pretty different from kind of the the other ones that I've played. But th it combines so much of the stuff that I like from, you know, your more traditional JRPGs and also some of the action RPGs that are kind of side-scrollers because that's what the battle scenes in Tales of Destiny are. It's a, it's a side-scrolling battle screen, which somehow works really well for it. I, I'm not really sure how they pulled it off, but it's, it's very well done. So the first one uh, that I want to talk about is Imperialism. This is a very early strategy game that kind of takes a more like a global approach. You can try to conquer the world through like military might. You can try to conquer the world through uh, diplomacy, and that's kind of. Or you can just run the timeout. That, that's the other way that you can win. It's a pretty fun game, but it's one of those games where I'm not sure why I like it. Mostly because it's it's not as visually appealing as games are now. Uh, there's not a whole lot of animation. The battle scenes are, are pretty... The battle scenes look nice, but they're rather primitive in what they're doing because you're not really seeing your characters move across the, the screen. It's just sort of like move a character here and you just watch the, watch the little sprite that represents them move across the screen. They don't actually walk. They just sort of like teleport or something like that from one spot to another it's a little bit like um like playing with army men so if you ever did that like when you were little and i should probably explain so there were these things called army men and they were just like either green or peach plastic and they might have come in some other colors as well but you would you know set those up and pretend to have battles with them and if you were like me and my brother you would set up some rather elaborate ones that would have, like, fireworks and everything. So you're, you're blowing up firecrackers and, like, uh, and setting off, like, the actual uh, firework tanks and whatnot, and you're just melting a bunch of army men. But it's fine, because you could buy, like, another bag of army men for, like, a couple bucks, and you'd get, like, 300 of the damn things. So they were, they were really cheap and just little plastic, uh, little plastic army guys. Had a bunch of different weapons, that sort of thing. And playing imperialism kind of reminds me of playing with those uh, those little army men because you just have a bunch of characters, uh, mostly like infantry. But as like technology moves on, you get more um, cannons become more of a thing, and then eventually you end up with like some relatively primitive World War One tanks. And you know it starts you off in the early eighteen hundreds. So you have, like, uh, Napoleonic and uh, Revolutionary War, war uh, military units, and you're trying to, uh, trying to industrialize your country as fast as you can. And it's all about, you know, capturing resources and exploiting those. And there are a bunch of minor nations as well. 
there are, I think, eight major nations and a whole bunch of minor ones. I, I'm not really sure about how many minor ones there are. But you try to turn those minor nations into colonies. And, you know, it's it's kind of fun. <laughs> and, uh, that's sort of how you can game the system, to to put it in a nice way. You get all these little colonies, and they're kind of forced to buy the goods that you're selling. And that kind of helps you later on as, you know, your um your options for trade become more and more limited. It's a it's a really fun game, but I I play it and I keep wondering why am I playing this game? Like why do I I think it's fun? Why do I find it entertaining? And I was having those questions when I was playing that. And in between playing I was playing this in between uh, playing Tales of Destiny. And with Tales of Destiny, it's much more straightforward as to why I like it. It's it's a very fun game. It's a it's a role playing game. It's stuff that I enjoy doing. And then going and playing Imperialism, it's harder to kind of put my finger on you know the the why I like it so much. And I've really been having those thoughts like quite a bit when I'm when I've been playing video games. I'm starting to kind of look at them and wonder you know why do I enjoy this so much or. Why do I, I not enjoy it? Because there are some games that I'll start playing. I'll play for like a half an hour or an hour or something like that. And I just can't really get into them. Or there are games that I'll start playing and I'm just like, I, I don't want to spend the time to get into this. It's just not really, not really worth it, at least to me. Not so much from like an enjoyment standpoint, but from like an investing my time standpoint. I feel like there's other stuff that I could be doing than sitting down and, and playing any any particular game, or playing the game that I've picked out for myself to play. It's kind of weird going through stuff like that and sitting down, asking myself why I enjoy X more than I enjoy Y, and. It's just a very strange thing that I've come across in the, in the last uh, few years. When I was younger, it was so much easier because, one, my choices were a lot more limited, and two, the, the type of game that I was playing, I didn't really have like one genre that I went to over and over again. It was kind of all over the map. And that's sort of what I've been trying to do recently, is just play a whole bunch of different stuff and kind of add some more variety to what I'm doing and I'm finding that's in some cases harder to do because I'll run into some games that I just can't get into and I, I just cannot understand at all and kind of bring that full circle um, we'll go back to Tales of Destiny for a little bit this is a game that has like a really cool story it's got a lot of dumb shit in it too don't get me wrong there, there's some pretty stupid stuff in there that I, I look at and I'm like, really, that's the best that you could come up with? You, you're going to call the being that inhabits a sword a swordian? And, you know, that we're just going to roll with that. Yeah, all right. Spent all this time coming up with, like, creative names and, like, a backstory for this world and everything. And, and then you're just like, oh, shit, what do we call the swords? Uh, swordians, we'll go with that. No one will ask any questions. It'll be fine. <laughs> no one will care about this. Just uh, just call it Swordia and move on with it, you know, whatever. But I'm playing that game, and I'm just thinking to myself, Tales of Destiny is really fun. It's got a pretty straightforward story. You just have to save the world. 
and, and then you then you have to do it again because you know you, you finish the first part you think you've saved everything and then it turns out the bad guy you were fighting was just kind of like a mini boss you weren't really fighting the big bad person and then you go through another section defeat that guy and then you find out he's being controlled by something else and then you it's kind of weird when i when i think more about it because you're you're fighting someone who's being controlled by another character that you I don't think you ever really hear about him until the very end. And then you don't get a whole lot of backstory on him. But you hear a lot about what him and like his kind of race of people did. So that's kind of interesting. And then they keep then they bring back some other stuff that you're told rather quickly this one character that you you never talk to throughout the game. You never find it. And you find it at the very end, and you find out... I've said find way too many frickin' times in this. So I'll just kind of spit that out. Sorry, everyone. You, you find out that the stupid Sordian, which was supposedly destroyed, wasn't. And now, like, the the real bad guy is inhabiting this Sordian. And you have to defeat that person in order to move on. And you have to do a whole bunch of weird little tests and everything. To, or not really tests, but you have to do a whole bunch of weird shit in order to get your Sordians powered up and then return and defeat the big bad guy. It's an interesting way of doing it, and I, I kind of like it a lot. It's got some weird stuff in there, too. Because you, you're told there are six Sordians at the very beginning. Then you're told one of them is dead. And then you have one guy who's forced into fighting against you, who who also is uh, one of the Sordian masters. He sabotages one of the four good Sordians now, so you have to find a way to repair that Sordian. God, that, that stupid name. I feel so stupid saying Sordian over and over again, but th that's the way the game wanted to do it, so okay. Anyway. You get that Sordian repaired, and then you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to return to kind of kind of where the, the big bad guy is. And there's a whole bunch of other weird shit. Like, at first you don't really know what's going on when the big bad guy's doing all of his terrible stuff. And it's like, he's shooting off chunks of the Earth. Or, like, whatever planet this is supposed to be on. He's shooting off chunks of it, and they're building, like, a shell around, like, the inner Earth. Which, I don't understand how that would even work. Like, it, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that would go into it. I'm not totally positive how... It, it just kind of feels like science has no real, like, laws in this world. It's very strange. Because you just have, like, this massive sphere of Earth that's created around the around the actual planet, and it's just like, what, what the fuck is happening? And the more I think about it, the more I, I get kind of confused by that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, you go up there, and, and you eventually uh, you eventually beat the big big bad guy. I haven't quite got that, gotten to that part yet. I'm back up on, on the, uh, I forget what they call it, but the planet outside, the planet that's surrounding your planet is the best way I can put it. And I just have to kind of get out of 
just have to um to get my shit together and actually finish it. Just been busy with a whole bunch of other weird stuff. So anyway, like I've been playing that. I, I was playing Imperialism. And one of them, I can clearly say why I like it. There's a lot of great stuff to talk about in Tales of Destiny. And then with Imperialism, I'm kind of just like, I don't I don't get why. Like, I, I'm not sure what is going on in that game that I'm drawn to and what I enjoy playing. I do like strategy games. I do like kind of figuring out that sort of stuff and, like, the more tactical stuff in Imperialism. But aside from that, it's... It's a game from the early 90s that didn't really, that wasn't all that great back in the early 90s from like a visual standpoint. But, gosh, I don't, I don't really know how to say this. It's a really fun game, but I can't really pinpoint why it's fun. It's one of those weird instances. So I think that's gonna, that's gonna wrap everything up here. Um, I'm sorry if this was kind of a weird episode to the people that are going to listen to this, if they ever decide to. But yeah, it was just one of those strange things. Um, It's been a weird month, and I think next month is going to be just as weird. So yeah, hopefully I can... I'll have more to talk about next month. And maybe maybe I'll uh, sit down and actually kind of think through why I like certain games and why I don't. Or maybe I'll I'll talk about a different genre or something next month. Or like do a deep dive on a specific genre or something along those lines. Anyway guys, that's going to wrap everything up. Uh, I hope you guys had a great month. I hope you have a great next month too. And I will talk to you all later. Bye.